Good morning, church. Woo, there it is. Hey, hey, wow. I might come back more often I get that kind of reception. Good morning. Good to see you guys. Love you too. Good to be here. Good to be here. Um, excited to bring the word today. This is a topic that I couldn't be more passionate about. It's, it's almost one of those things where you feel like God just molded you for this. Um, even the times when I wasn't walking with the Lord, it felt like I was being prepared for this. And, and we're going to be diving into a topic that is very difficult for many. And, and you can raise your hand if you want to or not, but how many times have you been told that a woman can't preach or lead in the local church? Just about everybody? Okay, yeah. I was too. In fact, my first sermon here at the adventure, I walked in and saw Pastor Jody preaching, and I wouldn't lie, there was a little bit of a click there, like, is she allowed to do that? <laughs> and so I, there's something rooted in, in really the culture around this topic but I say that because it's not rooted in the Bible. And that's a, that's a very hard thing to say sometimes. And even, and even speaking that out, I know that it's already putting a, a target on my forehead. But I am more than willing to take that any day just to see somebody grow and walk unhindered in what God has called them to do. Amen. And so for the next two weeks, I'm going to be diving into this topic. And the first week, we're going to look at the main passage that is often cited to prohibit women teachers or women leaders in the church, and that's 1 Timothy chapter 2. And, and what I'm going to do is I am going to walk you through kind of a, a paraphrase of the first two chapters so that we can understand what is actually happening. Because the first thing that I often see misused in this topic is a thing called proof texting. You guys ever heard of the word proof texting before? And, and I often say this a lot, is a text without a context is a pretext, which leads to presuppositions, which leads to misinterpretations, which, mis, which leads to misapplication. If we start with a text without understanding how it was originally meant to be, our application is going to be skewed. I mean, how many times have you been taken out of context when you're speaking? That doesn't feel good, does it? When someone takes your words and twists them to fit their own agenda. Okay, and we have to stop doing that with the Bible, Amen. with God's word himself. And so I'm going to give you a few examples of why we don't proof text. Okay, and you're going to think some of these are pretty funny. Here's the first one. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I don't know about you, but I wasn't greeted... <laughs> Noah, yeah. Noah's all for proof texting this one. I don't know about you, but I, I wasn't raised kissing people in church. Well, I wasn't supposed to, at least. I was a pastor's kid, after all. But here's another one, right? I can build an entire doctrine around this, okay? How about the next one? This is one that is really interesting if you know who's seeing it. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Who said that? The devil. But I guess how I could take that proof text, it's in the Bible after all, and twist it and make it sound like this is something we should apply. 
How about this one, Genesis 17, 14? This is one that Paul would have had to confront all the time. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Men, how glad are you that this is not something we have to apply today? But this is something he had to confront constantly. The book of Galatians in particular is all about why we don't have to do this anymore. But guess what? His opposition was proof texting Genesis 17 and saying, you, you Gentiles, you have to do this. Okay, and then what about this one? Here's a, here's a fun one, 1 Timothy 2.15. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness and propriety. Done, right? This is one of the reasons why this text is so misunderstood because we'll, like, we'll take the first part of it and forget about the last part and say, this is a simple, simple solution. It's not. It's a complex text. So if we think all those are ridiculous, why do we do what we do in 1 Timothy 2.12? Where all you'll ever hear from somebody a lot of times is 1 Timothy 2.12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. If we think these before this are ridiculous, and we laugh and we joke and say, who would do this? This is what we do. This is what happens. 1 Timothy 2.12 becomes the text that is often proof texted in this. And I'm here to tell you that there is more to this passage that you may not know. And that's why we're diving into this, because what we'll see in the next 30 minutes is that 1 Timothy is what's called a corrective letter, correcting something that was skewed. The Ephesian church was a royal mess, a royal mess full of deception and arrogance in virtues and unethical practices of Christians. And what he's doing is he's correcting a problem that was in Ephesus. And what he does, as Paul always does, is he says, in order to be corrected in these things, we're going to put practical application in, but we're going to see that redemption is through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's consistent with all of his other letters. But we have to look at the historical context uh, in a very important part instead of proof texting, right? Greeting each other with a holy kiss is not something we do in our culture, right? Something they did quite often, or if you're French. <laughs> they are, they're probably the most biblical in that regard. We're going to look at how this text fits within the rest of the letter. Again, look at the context as a whole. Very important to see why Paul is writing this why he's applying these things. And what we're going to see is, is universal principle that we can apply today, but also that are applied in the present sense of, of Ephesus. Because Paul is not writing to us today. He's writing these for us today. We need to understand that the Bible ris wasn't originally written to us. Paul's not thinking about Draper, Utah, when he's writing this text. He's thinking about these brothers and sisters in Ephesus He's writing about this young man who has to go in and try to correct these problems to Timothy. But the principles he's applying are directly for us. And that's the important piece. We have to dive into these things because we have to, as 2 Timothy says, we have to work hard in being able to speak what is happening in the word of God. So let's start with context. 
And I want to first start off with the culture of the time. Now, this is something I, I studied uh, greatly, of great extent to in college. I was what you, you would call a Hellenistic scholar. I loved everything from Alexander to Augustus. I had to learn Greek. I had to learn Latin. Later, I had to learn Hebrew. I was passionate about this subject. This is why one of those things where I say I was kind of equipped for this time, for this topic, for this very subject, I kind of revert back to this time of my life. And there are a number of writers that we can quote that talk about the status of women. And and I'll just say this, that out of all the Jewish writers that we have during the time of Jesus and even before or after, Jesus is the only rabbi, the only teacher who elevates the status of women. He's the only one who would allow them to sit at his feet and learn. Here's a couple of examples. We have Josephus, who's writing 10 years after Paul would have wrote 1 Timothy. He says, But let not the testimony of women be admitted on account of their levity and boldness of their sex, since it is probable that they may not speak truth, either out of hope of gain or fear of punishment. And in the Jerusalem Talmud, says this, it says, any evidence which a woman gives is not valid. This is equivalent to saying that one who is rabbinically accounted a robber is qualified to give the same evidence as a woman. So their evidence, any, any type of testimony they give cannot be accepted in the court of law. In fact, they probably have some hidden agenda in order to do so. So there's, there's, there's an ontological focus here on women. The fact they don't have a Y chromosome equates to some kind of an issue. That's, that's the Jewish culture of the time of Jesus. Jesus is not adhering this. He was what we would call very progressive for his time. He was radical in this. In fact, Mary, the person who actually gets to see Jesus first at the tomb, she's what you would call an apostle to the apostles because she was the first one to tell the apostles that he rose, and they didn't believe her. Jesus had to appear, and they were like, oh, she was right. <laughs> and then Thomas said, I got to even touch him. And so this isn't something that, that even the apostles at the time really understood. Mary's witness itself is, is, a, is a, an extreme proof of the resurrection. The fact that that testimony, that witness is in there is proof that there was something greater than, than what is going on in the culture. And then we have another Jewish uh, writer, and I don't mean to pick on the Jewish guy. Sorry, Ira, this is, this is your people. <laughs> this is in the Talmud. He says, the words of the Torah, this is the first five books of the Old Testament, should be burned rather than entrusted to a woman. This is the culture at which the Bible was birthed. And then you have the Greek understanding. So we have the Jewish understanding, now we have the Greek understanding. This is Aristotle, one of the most quoted Greeks and, and probably one of the founders of Greek culture. He said, the male is by nature superior and the female inferior. The one rules and the other is ruled. I'm just, I'm trying to set the sin who's, who's bending the culture or not here, right? 
This is Menander. This is, this is a saying from about 400 BC, but it was copied and, and, and written over and over again by young school children growing up in the first 300 years of our common era. It says, a man who teaches a woman to write should know that he is providing poison to an asp. Imagine being, you know, an eight-year-old boy writing that out a hundred times in a, in a notebook or whatever they used. And then here's another one. A woman who travels outside her house should be old enough to, that people ask whose mother she is, not whose wife she is. I'm just, this is real. This is real. I mean, this is the culture to which Paul is speaking into. This is the culture. This is why the gospel is so radical. This is why the things that Jesus does in John 4 are so radical with the woman at the well. This is why Mary sitting at Jesus' feet are so radical. Of course, we, we see exceptions of, of wealthier women being educated and, and going on, but it, it's very, very rare and not in any way the general state of the culture. And we're going to see how in 1 Timothy, we're going to see how Paul is going to continue the elevation of women. Because, again, women were not educated. They were not allowed to be educated. They were not mostly allowed to leave their homes. Okay? This is a very oppressed people group, we would say, in both the Greek and Jewish world. I mean, the Jewish world, especially the Old Testament, definitely had a more of an elevated status of women than the rest of the world at that time. But we're going to see how Jesus completely destructs the foundations of social culture. Okay? So let's look at 1 Timothy. In the context of 1 Timothy, the main thing you need to understand about 1 Timothy is, is that, one, it's a corrective letter, but also it's dealing with false teaching and deception. 60% of this letter is based on how to correct false teaching and deception within the church. Because false teaching leads to arrogance. False teaching can lead to unchristian characteristics. And Paul is, is fixated on how a Christian should work and live and, and be among the assembly of God. How are we recognized is something he is constantly talking about. The witness of the gospel is always at the very tip point of Paul's ideas. And so that's why he needs Timothy to go in and correct what is going on. And it's similar to a senior pastor speaking to somebody who who's, would be coming into to ministry. Right? Imagine, imagine you know, Pastor Jody and myself sitting down and she would go, you know, I don't usually do it this way. Here's a good thing to do. Here's a good thing to practice. And then she would say, don't you dare do that stuff. Don't do this stuff. Don't do this stuff. Don't do this stuff. That's what we see in 1 Tim. We see a younger man coming into a ministry and Paul then explaining to him, okay, this is, this is how to do this. Because Paul was the pastor, I guess you would call it that to our, our terminology today, was the pastor of Ephesus for a number of years. He knows what's going on. He knows the people that are causing strife. He's been there, he's, done, he's fought the battles, and now he's preparing this new guy to come in and help. But we see what's, what's called, I would say, the thesis statement. This is like the, the main topic, the reason for the letter in the first chapter, verses 3 through 7. It says, as I urged you, talking to Timothy, when I went into Macedonia, so this kind of tells us that they've had these discussions before. This isn't the first time Timothy's hearing this. 
Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer. The certain people is the word tis. It's, it's a neutral. It means we have both males and females causing false teaching and disruption and, and problems. And these false teachings seem to be around devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. This, this idea of meaningless talk is, is, uh, is what we would call in the Greek word a babble. They just go blah, 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 blah. And that's how Paul talks about false teaching. It's just blah, 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 blah. It's nonsense, Okay. These people, they want to be teachers of the law. They want to be able to explain what goes on in the Old Testament, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. And so you have people who don't really understand and know the Old Testament trying to teach the Old Testament and trying to do it confidently, trying to stand up and say, this is what it means, and if you disagree with me, I'm going to cut you Right? Isn't that kind of like what, it, it, I mean, that idea of, of, of uncertainty and insecurity brings in that kind of mindset, doesn't it? Like, don't you dare disagree with me. Because I know what I'm talking about. And it's going to cause speculation. It's going to cause all kinds of issues. It's going to cause disruption. And that's what we're seeing in the Ephesian church. Does that mean all churches have this problem? No. We're talking about a specific situation in Ephesus but the principles that we can pull from this will apply to us today. So we have to make sure we know what is actually being spoken of in Ephesus, and that way we can properly apply the principle for today. So that, is, that sets the scene. We have deceivers. These are mostly men who are starting it. We actually get two names, Hymenius and Alexander in verse 10, who are targeting women in particular. Why would they do that? They do it because the women aren't educated. And guess what? There's a lot of rich widows in Ephesus. Ephesus at this time is one of the richest cities in the Roman Empire. Wealth is abundant. We see that later in Acts. It causes huge problems for the church because people are starting to destroy the, the Artemis statues and they want to kill them all. This causes riots. There's huge amounts of wealth that the Christian church is now disrupting in Ephesus. And there's false teachers that are being are talking about endless mythology, endless mythologies, and, and endless genealogies, and they'll talk about how it's not important to get married, and, and all of these these different ideas that are contrary to what Paul is trying to teach and equip the people of Ephesus. And it's starting with men, and they're targeting rich widows, rich widows who have houses, who have money, who can be benefactors, who are uneducated. And we're going to see Paul's resolution to this and how he says to fix this. Even in 2 Timothy 3, 6 through 9, this is a letter written maybe a year later. He talks about these false teachers again. He says, they, the false teachers, are the kind who worm their way into homes. I love that, worming that conniving way into homes. And that's important because the Ephesian church met in homes. We would call them community groups today. There wasn't just a mass gathering of people. They had house churches. Paul even says in Acts to greet all the house churches of Ephesus for him. So we have many little micro churches all over the city. 
So these false teachers are, are worming their way into these homes, and they gain control over what the NIV says, gullible women. But it's more like a, these silly women who don't really know what these things mean. And these women are, are loaded down with sins and swayed by all kinds of evil desires. Does that mean women are gullible all the time? No. Does that mean they're always consumed with evil desires? No. Does that mean they're swayed so easily? I'll tell you, that's not true. I'm a married man. I can't sway my wife to do anything. So it's not talking about the the ontological, the inherency of women. It's talking about these uneducated, new-to-the-table believers who the false teachers are going, there's an easy target with a lot of money. Let's get our way into those homes. That way we have a place to meet. That way we have money for us to progress our ideas. In fact, what we'll see is the very first great Christian, well, you can call it Christian heresy because it's got some, it's, they use Christian principles and things. It's called Gnosticism. It births itself in Ephesus. We see guys like Tertullian and Arrhenius, these, these first uh, century, the second century teachers of Christianity going, talking against Gnosticism, and they use the idea of myths and endless genealogies. They quote Paul to say that these Valentinians is what they call them, these Gnostics are coming out of Ephesus. They're using these avenues, these money, these homes to grow their movement. And Paul is trying to tell Timothy, don't let this happen. So he says these teachers are always learning, but never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres oppose Moses, those are those goofy, um, I always think of the prince of Egypt, those goofy sorcerers who are trying to copy everything Moses does. That's who they do. They're always opposing the truth. They are men of depraved minds who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected, but they will not get very far because in, this case of those, because in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. I just think it's really fascinating that our sisters in Christ are the ones getting blamed for all the deception, and they have some weak ability to actually discern when it's actually the men who started all of this. You guys find that ironic, too? that they're the ones who are actually targeting sisters in Christ? So the women of Ephesus, they were specifically targeted because they were new to the table. We might use the, the term new believers or, or, or believers coming out of a different religious system. I mean, remember, most of these women are pagans or were pagans coming out of worshiping a cult of Artemis, this, this great Artemis god who empowered women who would have thought that because of, of Artemis, there was, we have this superior station. That's the mindset these women have. I mean, how many of you came out of, of, of a, of a, of, of a non-Christian background? Did you carry kind of that, that same mindset with you when you walked into a, a biblical Christian lifestyle? You did, right? These women did as well. They did the exact same thing. They're carrying in what they were taught before, and Paul is asking to correct them, to teach them. In the speaking of the young widows in 1 Timothy 5.13, he says that they get into the habit of being idle and going from house to house. This is, again, the house churches. And not only do, do they become idlers, but also busybodies who, again, talk nonsense. The blah, 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 blah. Not just gossip. It's actual, non, it's the false teaching, the nonsense that Paul likes to reference saying things they ought not to. So here's the picture. We have an Ephesus. We have a, a group of people of men most likely coming in, targeting women, young, rich women, widows. 
as benefactors and deceiving them to, to progress into their way of thinking. This could be early Gnosticism, it could be Judaizers, it could be a mixture of a lot of things, okay? The picture here and the point is important is that Paul is talking about deception, not Y and X chromosomes. He's talking about the importance of battling deception and false teaching. This leads into chapter two and actually the controversy of the past. This is Paul's correction. Because of all of this deception, because of all that's happening in chapter one, because of the the false teaching, this is how we're going to answer back. He says, I urge then, first of all, that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. Just have prayer sessions. Pray, get together and pray. Here's a solution. For all kinds of those who are in authority, that's the Greek word huperoke. It's different than the word authority we're going to look at today. Did you know Greek had different words for authority? Has many different words for authority. It says that we may live in peaceful and quiet lives and on godliness and holiness. Again, the character of a Christian. Peaceful, holiness, godliness. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. This has now been witnessed to at the proper time, and for this purpose I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, and a true and faithful teacher of the Gentiles. So we see a a really poetic poem that, that Paul throws in there. He throws it in between these, these chapters. So he talks about Christian ethics, the importance of being godly, holy, peaceful people. And then he goes into an instruction. He says, therefore, I want the men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. So is that just an only a man thing? Do only men get angry and dispute things? Yes. Jody says yes. I would disagree. <laughs> But we have probably have guys getting together and they're angry and they're disputing over what is being talked about in these house churches. They're getting together and they're, they're upset about it. Paul's like, let it go. Let's pray. Let it go. Let's pray. As Pastor Jody says, it's come to this. Let's pray. And then he goes to the women. He says, I also want the women to dress modestly with decency and propriety. Is that just for women? Should men also probably dress decent with propriety? Okay, we're seeing that this is not just like only women, only men. These are things that just as Christians we do, as, as followers of Christ. And then he says, adorning themselves with elaborate hairstyles, and, and the literal word there is actually braided hair. How many of you would take that literally as a proof text and say, well, we're not allowed to have braided hair in church? There's, I'm honestly, there's Christian denominations who do this. Okay? The Bible, the NIV captures it. It's elaborate. It's these rich women had elaborate hairstyles. They could afford slaves to, to braid it and, and put gold, and they would walk into church strutting their stuff. Like, look how rich and wonderful we are. And then not only that, but they're deceived, so they walk in and go, and look at this new teaching I got from Hymenus and Alexander. Right? And they would walk into these churches, and they would, they would cause dispute and anger and, and tension and division and all these problems. Not with gold or pearls or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for women who profess and worship God. So good deeds, they're, not, they're, not, they're finding their recognition in the vanity of, of the things they have, not the servitude to their, to their Lord. And we see a lot of women in the first and second centuries, they, they will act, like one of my favorite is a name, her name is Olympias. She's one of John Chrysostom's fa- uh, favorite deacons. 
And she actually is from a wealthy family in Byzantium and, and will actually sell all of it away to serve the Lord. Propriety and, and, and devotion to Jesus. And we see this word hosautos, it just means in the same way. So he's making a connection. He's looking at, okay, the men are angry in dispute. The women are, are finding a lot of vanity and their wealth and things like that in the houses. But all of this can be together encapsulated into a Christian ethical solution. We should all gather and not be angry and disputing. We should all gather to pray and not be mad at each other. We should all find not our recognition of things that we have of this world, but in our servitude to Jesus. That's the principle here. That's what Paul's universal principle is. And if you look at it, if you look at take all of this in proof text, you'll say, this is how the church has to be. Women can't adorn themselves in any way. Men are always angry and disputing everything. Okay, that's not what Paul is saying here. He's using universal principles so we can apply today. And this leads us into the funnest part. It says, and I'll just read the, the NIV translation and then I'll break it up. It says, a woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or assume authority over a man. She must be quiet. There it is, we're done. <laughs> just kidding. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. This is the only imperative given in this text in chapter two. An imperative is a command. It's the grammatical way of saying this is a command. That women must learn in full submission and quietness. The character of a learner is one of submission and quietness. Any teachers in the house? What happens when your student is yelling during your talk? What happens if they're not actually applying what you're teaching them? Are they good, te are they good students? Are they actually learning what is being said? I, I don't know math. That's why. I probably was talking a lot during my math classes. And in this statement is by far the most radical statement that Paul makes in chapter 2. People hearing this at the time would have said, wait, did Paul say we have to teach the women? Did you say they have to learn? That means we have to teach them. You know the culture. I just recited it to you. They would have been like, the Jerusalem Talmud says this, Paul. And he said, but Jesus let Mary sit at his feet. Romans 16 is full of women who learned from Paul. And if our ministries do not match that of Jesus and Paul, I say we're missing something. If we don't have men and women in the wake of our ministries being equipped and raised up, we're missing something. It's because he was teaching and learning. And that fact, that word learn is the same word we get disciple. It's the same word. Disciple these women who are being deceived and led into false teaching. Teach them what is right. And women, be, be in the way of a, a good learner. Be quiet and, and submissive to the idea of learning what is being said because it's life-giving truth of the faith. We see other imperatives used as well in the same chapter, which is why we can see how they line up. We see in, in 1 Timothy 5, 1, he says to Timothy, do not rebuke an older man harshly, but encourage him as if you're a father. I apply this one to Ira all the time. <laughs> Just kidding. I love you. That is an imperative, okay? That is saying, don't do this, Timothy, and that's something we can apply universally today. How about this one? Do not neglect your gift, 
which was given to you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. This is an imperative. The imperatives tend to be universally commands that we can apply throughout. And that's what I, it's why I named this sermon, Let Her Learn. It's the most radical statement of Paul. It's the, one of the most radical things that Jesus did was elevate the place of women apart from the culture to a place of learning. And why do we learn? So we can inform. The first person to share the gospel was a woman. She sat at the well in Samaria learning who Jesus was. What did she do with it? She told her whole village about it. Jesus is not equipping us to be disciples so we can just sit and be disciples. It's a means to an end to share what we've learned. And instead of sharing deception, as the Ephesians women were doing, he's asking them to learn so they can share truth. Share what actually is of, of right beginnings, of, of the things of the Old Testament, the truth and principles of it. And we have a, a, a Jewish writer named Sirach who kind of who confirms this mindset. He was a Jewish rabbi. He says, before you speak, learn. Before you fall ill, take care of your health. Before you speak, learn so that you don't actually talk about bad things and ill things and become unhealthy, which is what we're seeing in, in, in Ephesus. The biblical principle here is to learn before you teach. We would never ask someone who came to Christ yesterday to come up here and give a sermon because they haven't spent the time learning yet. They have to untangle the mess of everything that's going on around them. I mean, teaching is part of that. What is true? What is not true? How many of you were just saved and radically knew everything? No one? Yep. I'm, we're constantly learning. We're constantly learning about the gospel, learning how its depths and its, its beauty, learning about what's right and wrong. We're, we're, we're wrestling with it. The women were Ephesus were deceived by false teachers and were spreading this nonsense because they hadn't learned going house to house spreading deception. They needed to be corrected by calmly learning what was right. So then let me jump into authority. Because that word is the word that often gets hinged upon women leading in a church. And that word there is the word authentine. And anybody who study it knows that there's about 20 different ways you can use that word. It starts off really early in its history by meaning murder and suicide. It literally means out of oneself. And so in order to figure out what this means, because it's what's called a hapax legomena, it means that it's the only time this word is used in all of the New Testament. It's not exousia, which is used over a hundred times for authority and power. When Jesus says that all authority has been given to me on heaven and on earth, he's using the word exousia. When Paul uses um, hooper okay uh, in the above text for kings and authorities, that's, that's that word. Here we have authentine. The fact that he uses this is very, very important in understanding what it means. And in order to understand what it means, we have to see how it is used during the same time because we can't look at other words of Paul and go, oh, this is how he uses it here. This is how he uses it here. This is how he uses it here. 
we have to look how the culture is using it at the same time. And one of my buddies, uh, his name is Nick Quint, really a rising star in scholarship, and this guy is gonna, he's gonna blow people away. He did a study, he's an he's a American Baptist pastor in, in California, and, and him and I are good friends, and he was doing a study on Philo. Philo is a, a Jewish contemporary of Paul's. And Philo writes a document that compares the murder of Cain and Abel from an ethical perspective. He says that Cain often tied Abel, to paraphrase it. Cain had self-love. He was arrogant. He, was not, uh, he, was not, he didn't care about learning about what was going on. And because of that, he overpowered, he mastered Abel. He dominated Abel. Here we have that same word being used again by Paul. We have people who are self-loving, arrogant, commanding attention, dominating men. It's not about X and Y chromosomes, guys. It's not about male and female genders. It's about the Christian character that we do not dominate one another. So when Paul says, I do not allow a woman to teach or preach or to have authority over a man, he's saying, I don't allow them to teach because one, they're not learning, and two, they're dominating people. They're mastering people in a negative way. The other side will just argue that this just means authority and don't look too far into it. But I love the word of God to look not too far into it because it means murder in context, it means suicide in context, it means the author of deceit in other contexts. It's not a good word, and it aligns definitely, definitely, definitively to the idea of unchristian ethics. And then the word epitrepo, this is a, a Greek word for I do not allow, or I do or allow, or permit. It's used, I would say, over 100 times as well. And every single time, and this is it's in the first person singular, which if you know grammar, that's what that is. It's not an imperative. It's not the command mood like the one above it. Every single time it is used in the present situation. There is not one example in all of the New Testament where you can take epitropo and say, this is a universal command for all time. You just can't do it. Permission or allow, it is only ever used in the present situation. This is a dead giveaway to anyone reading the Greek grammar that says Paul is speaking to a present situation in Ephesus about the women who are not learning so they shouldn't teach and they're dominating their students or their men in the houses. They're not allowing them to speak. They're not allowing them to have any type of, of, of opinion. You could see this, this arrogance coming through and it's not a women issue, it's a sinful issue. It's a heart issue. Paul is not looking at gender. He's looking at what is happening in Ephesus and making a statement on Christian character and what you should and should not do, and this is how you correct it. If we have false teachers in the church, you think we're going to let them teach or have authority in the church? We're going to let them dominate other people? Of course not. That's what Paul is saying here. It just happens to be the women were the ones deceived and filtering it through the house churches of Ephesus because the false teachers who are men are telling them to do so and are targeting them in particular because they are uneducated. And that's leading to what's happening. 
I know I'm, I'm over time, so we might go into part two next week. I think what I'll probably do is continue on this passage in part two because it's so important to understand how then Paul uses an analogy to show how, why and how deception can happen. But I want you to, to know, though, as we, con- as we kind of conclude this here today, is that there is no biblical evidence to show that a woman cannot teach and have authority in the church. The biblical evidence is, is that we should stomp out deception. We should stomp out false teachings. So women, you are free to teach, to lead. In fact, I want to read you this quote. I want to read you this quote. This is from a a British theologian. It was a preacher named Campbell Morgan. And it aligns really well with with what uh, Pastor Jody's been talking about the last few weeks. He says, there are one or two simple facts which if born of mind ought to settle the question whether women should teach or preach. First, in Christ there can be no male and female. Second, fitness for ministry in the church consists in the possession of a gift bestowed by the Holy Spirit. Third, the Spirit bestows his gifts upon each one severely severely as he will. If the Holy Spirit bestows upon some woman a gift in the ministry to the word, i.e. a teacher, no ecclesiastical church organization has any right to prevent her exercising that gift. And there certainly ought to be room for our churches for the exercise of every gift bestowed by the leader of the church through the Spirit, speaking of Jesus without reference to nationality, social position, or sex, for these things are abolished in Christ. The fact that you have a, you're a man or a woman, even though we are different, does not hold you in different status or position or role within the kingdom of God. When Jesus really did destroy the barriers and the hindrances for all of mankind to come to him. He also destroyed the barriers of gender. That men and women will both be poured out upon by the Holy Spirit. So when I'm here to tell you that if you have a gift, I got your back. If you have been called to lead, I have got your back. Jesus has got your back. He did the same things. Now, women, if you have been hindered in any way by this text, if someone has told you you can't fulfill what God has poured into your life because of this text, God has come to redeem you through this message. He has redeemed you from that. And we as a church are here to champion you to encourage you, to spur you on in the servitude of Christ, not to ask you to to go home. That may be too far. (laughs) But can we stand? Let's pray.
Father God, thank you for all that you are doing in our hearts and in our minds. Lord, thank you for the freedom that you have given us in you. Thank you for the the giftings you have poured out upon us. Thank you for the correction that is found in your word of what a Christian character looks like. What the ethics of, of what it means to be a Christian should be observable in our lives. Lord, help us to be free from the bonds and constraints of this this hindrance to walking out what you have poured out into us. That this lie, this deception has really entangled half of the body of Christ. So Lord, I pray that you will set us free. Champion those who you've called to lead and to teach. Raise them up, equip them, and send them out as you have done before. Like the woman at the well, like Mary from the grave. Lord, I pray that you will call and empower all people. You will destroy the slander that associates with this this idea, which leads to unchristian ethics and virtues. It, It brings sin more than anything else. God, I pray that we will be free from all of that. We will be bold and confident in what your word has to say as we continue this word next week. So protect us, guide us, give us discernment and wisdom. In your name, I pray, amen. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week. You won't want to miss it.